James chapter 4. One of the things that's um, important, I think, about this particular section of Scripture, these 17 verses, is you get probably the deepest sense of James' concern for not only the body of Christ, but also for the world. Now, one of the big controversies about James chapter 4 is who is he writing to? Some say he never mentions the word brethren or brothers. He's mentioned them a number of times. And so is he just exclusively talking to the world, the lost world? Well, up until this point, he's just been talking to believers. And so there's really no reason to indicate that he stopped doing that. But also it's important to understand that one of the things that he's doing is he's contrasting between what is spiritual and what's carnal. What would be the desire of God for our lives and and the desire that Satan would have for those that he controls. And so really he gets to the heart of really what our our aspirations are, what what we really long for, what we really desire. And I've taken the title, Taming and Transforming the Old Nature, because we know for all of us, every day, every, every waking moment, there is this continual conflict between the spiritual and, and the fleshly. I mean, I deal with my flesh. My flesh has its fleshly appetites. Last night, the, uh, one of our, our dogs, our older dogs, he's not doing real well. Uh, matter of fact, you can be praying for Millie because it looks like he may be going to doggy heaven. And, um, and uh, don't ask me later if dogs are going to be in heaven. I don't really have any idea, but, but I hope so. We love our animals, right? But uh, he, uh, he woke me up at 3.30 this morning. And uh, I got up and I was trying to take care of him and I tried to get him to go outside and uh, he was just he was just having a rough time. And in the midst of all of that, I decided that my flesh said, I'm really hungry. And so at 3.30, I, I got up and I uh, made me a hamburger and, uh, and, and some potato chips and, um, and had, uh, had a, a not a soft drink, but a, just a bubbly drink with that. And I got done eating and I thought, man, that was pretty good. So I'm going to have me a cup of coffee. And so I had a cup of coffee. And so uh, basically, uh, because of my f- inability to control my flesh at 3.30, uh, I've been up since 3.30 this morning. So um, if, uh, if you hear snoring, that's probably me. Uh, I might even be doing that even as I'm, I'm, I'm sharing. But, you know, the, the appetites of the flesh are strong. The Word of God tells us that when we yield to that, when we give in to that, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life, that we, we open the door for the enemy. And uh, so on the way to church this morning, I closed that door on the enemy and I prayed and I just said, Lord, I, I, I shouldn't have been making a hamburger at 3.30 this morning. Uh, with cheese and avocado and onions and and my chips, um, uh, I put a little bit of uh, spice on those. So anyway, are are y'all hungry? Now you want to, you want to go eat lunch? But James warns his people and us as to the danger of misplaced affections. In other words, when we don't keep the flesh 
under control or in submission to God. The objects of our misplaced affections come in a variety of different forms. A number of different things. These are objects that we many times find ourselves attracted to. We're just, we're drawn to them and we can be placing anything or anyone before God as an object of our allegiance and our devotion. And it can happen very easily. When our affections are fixed on anything over and above God, we are in danger of allowing Satan the opportunity of creating a stronghold in our life. And what I mean by a stronghold is just a, uh, a an area of our life where he begins to gain more and more control. Where he takes advantage of that affection that's not surrendered to God and he begins to amplify that and he begins to use external things <clears throat> because he, he doesn't possess us and he can't read our mind, but he knows our nature. And so he'll begin to build up strongholds in those areas. Not only are we guilty of idolatry, according to the word of God, but as believers, we're also guilty of adultery. And let me explain that to you, because we know in the Old Testament that it was clear that God looked at his people and he said, you know what, I'm your father, I have a relationship with you, And I want you to seek after me with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Not forsaking me, not turning to the left or to the right. Just stay on track with me. And then when you get into the New Testament, there's a new relationship that begins with our relationship with Jesus Christ. Because he is referred to as the husbandman or as the groom in the church is the bride. And as the bride of Christ being wed to Jesus, having a relationship with him as the, the, as the groom, as the husbandman, then anything that we're doing that would separate or break that fellowship or anything that we go after in our affections that pulls us away from him, according to New Testament teaching, is an adulterous relationship. It's not unlike being unfaithful in a marriage. Because we're wed to Him through salvation, being born again. We're wed to Him by the Holy Spirit, kept through the Word of God and by the Holy Spirit. And so we never want our affections to get so out of control that it would jeopardize that. In the text that we're going to be looking at this morning, James seems to be saying that things were so bad that professing Christians were behaving similarly to those in the world. They, there was no difference. You looked at the church, you looked at the world, you couldn't see a whole lot of difference. And I want to encourage you this morning, there needs to be a marked difference. We, we need to stand out from the world. The things that the world promotes, the things that the world is aggressively seeking after, aren't necessarily things that we need to be engaged in. Now, I'm not talking about isolationism. I'm not talking about just, you know, totally ignoring uh, the world that we live in because we're in the world, but we're not of the world, right? Amen? And so, he wants us to understand that it's important that James is really saying, how could this be? How does this happen? A quick reading of the book of 1 Corinthians would answer the question. In chapter 5, Paul speaks of a sin in the church that so shocked the church, but it also was shocking to the pagan world. 
The pagans, the unsaved that were in Corinth, they were just saying, we can't believe this is happening. We can't believe that there's this type of sin going on in the church. In chapter 1 of James, the reader is told not to blame God for his sin or for his temptation, but he says that we're enticed and, and, and we're drawn away and we, we give in to that, we yield to that. And he says, ultimately, he says what it brings forth is sin. And if sin's not dealt with, it brings forth death. Spiritually, we die. So James tells us that the temptation comes from within and that Good and perfect gifts come from our Father who is above. So here in chapter 4, he will give us additional details on the source of our sins. So you look at chapter 4 and you think, man, it's really a negative portion of Scripture. But it's never negative to think about and be reminded of the consequences that sin has in our lives. And, And rather than being disturbed or upset or just, man... We have to just go so negative here, James. It's better for us to realize that we have the ability to deal with sin in our lives. We can we can overcome that. We can confess it. We can repent of it. And then we move on. And so he begins here and he says, where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? He says, you lust and you do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask amiss or you're asking for the wrong reasons, for the wrong things. He says that you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses. Do you not know that the friendship with the world is enmity with God? And that word enmity simply means that we're we're battling, we're at war with God. We're breaking down our relationship with Him. Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or Or do you think that the Scripture says in vain, the Spirit who dwells in us yearns jealousy, but he gives more grace. And therefore he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And so in those first six verses, he he makes his case. He wants them to understand that there is conflict even amongst the saints. And if you don't think that's true, we find the disciples arguing among themselves in the Gospels about who's going to be the greatest. You read it there in Mark chapter 9, verses 33 and 34. Then he, being Jesus, came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what was it that you disputed among yourselves on the road? What were you arguing about? What were you fighting about? But they kept silent. That simply means this. They were ashamed of what they'd done, and they didn't want to tell Jesus. For on the road, they disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. They're arguing about, well, you know what, I'm, I'm, I think Jesus likes me more. Uh, he has me around more than he has you around. And, and, and so I think, well, I think we're best buddies. We're best friends. And, and, and I think that, uh, bottom line, when he sets up his kingdom, you know, we're headed to Jerusalem and, and, and he's gonna, he's gonna go into Jerusalem. He's gonna set on the throne of David. He's gonna reestablish the, the kingdom of God. And, and, uh, I, I think I'm gonna be on his right. Now, you might be on the left, but I don't know. You'll have to discuss that with the other guys and find out what they think. I mean, that's what was going on. 
They're arguing about who's going to be the greatest. The greatest, the Word of God says, is the one who is the most humble. The one who is not self-seeking. The one who always takes the reserved place of even lifting up others in front of themselves. In other words, pushing other people forward and being content with where they're at. We find divisions, even lawsuits amongst the Christians. In 1 Corinthians 1, says, For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those, he says, of the household of, of Chloe, and, and that there are contentions among you. Now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, or I am of Paulus, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. And then later on in chapter 6, he brings it up again. And he says, because you go, to, you go to the judges, you go to law against one another. What are you doing? Why are you doing that? I think when Christians get into disputes or arguments, the best way to resolve that is to sit down and first pray for one another. And then just talk it out. And, and resolve it, seek the Lord, get the mind of the Lord. Even the wonderful church at Philippi had two women who were at odds with one another. They were fighting with one another. It says, therefore, Paul says, my beloved and long for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. He, he sets it up by saying, look, just love one another and, and love the Lord and, and stand strong in the Lord. And he says, I implore Eodia and in Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Now, I don't know, maybe they were fighting about their names. Those are pretty wild names. I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel. So it wasn't like they weren't serving God or they didn't want to be obedient to do the will of God, but, but they were fighting amongst themselves. They were arguing with one another. And so he says, look, for the rest of my fellow workers... Make sure that they're serving the Lord, they're, they're loving the Lord, they're loving one another, and therefore their names will be in the Lamb's book of life. Fights, quarrels, lust, hate, envy, pride, sin are all words that stain this portion of James' letter. You find it all right here. Matter of fact, you find it in just the first four or five verses. And he says, this is a condition that exists. One of the things that I think is so important is whenever there is self-seeking to the extent that it, it creates division or it creates hatred, the, the resolve that we have to have is, Lord, I, I need to get back to walking in humility. Just walking humbly before God. So he asks the question, where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? And so it's a, it's a subtle warning there. Characteristically, James introduces this new section with a rhetorical question. What causes the fights and the, and the quarrels? Where do fights? Literally, that word in the Greek is a state of war. I mean, it's just a battle that's going on amongst the brethren. He says, it's, it's quarreling. Where does it come from? James answered his own question. He says, from your desires that battle within you, conflict is always the result of inner sensual lust or pleasures, according to the Word of God. 
In other words, it doesn't always just start outwardly, but oftentimes it starts inwardly. It, it can begin with with resentment or or uncontrollable anger. I remember early in the giant season that one of their their closer, Strickland, uh, had a bad outing and and he lost the game in the ninth inning. And he, as he was leaving the field and he walked down into the clubhouse, he was so angry and his anger got the best of him and he took his fist and he slammed it into a metal door and he broke his hand. He just came back just a few weeks ago. He's been out all almost the whole season. And I remember, and I'm, I, I, I'm on Twitter with him, and, and he's a believer, he knows the Lord. He's a born-again Christian, strong believer. And I remember him going online and apologizing, but his first apology was to the Lord. He said, I know, he said that I allowed anger to take control, he said, even of my thought process. And he said, so my first apology is to, to the Lord. He said, I need to ask my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to forgive me for that anger. And then he apologized to his team because he's been out for most of the season. And it can just be a simple thing like that. I know in my own life there's been times when uh, anger has gotten the better of me. Millie and I, we were young in our marriage and we got bought our first house and, and uh, we were having an argument. None of you ever do that. You're so spiritual, right? Husbands and wives, you never argue with one another. No, 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 you don't be lying to the Lord this morning. And we're having this argument, and I, I remember something my dad told me. He said, son, if it ever gets like that, he said, just walk away. He said, just walk away, just diffuse the situation. So I walked, I walked out into the garage. Millie followed me. She wasn't done. She hadn't finished. She hadn't gotten all that she wanted to say in there. And, 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 I, and I turned around and I said, please, I said, let, let's just let this go. Let's just, you know, I'm getting angry. And she goes, well, you know, and, and just come. And, and I, I got so angry. When I walked out into the garage, I didn't have any shoes on. And leaning up against the wall was a, was a, 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 a ping pong table. And uh, I was so angry and I was just, uh, oh, and I just couldn't contain my anger. And I kicked the ping pong table and I broke my big toe and the toe next to it. And as I'm sitting on the floor in pain, I don't know if you've ever broken a toe, but I mean, that's so far away from your, from your pain sensors, but it gets there really quick, right? And, and I'm sitting there and holding my, and I mean, I'm, I have tears and Millie looked at me and she goes, well, I've never seen anything like it. And just turned around and went back in the house. No compassion. No, no. Hey, I'm really sorry. I shouldn't have been arguing with you. Just she just was amazed that I, the anger got the best of me. But what what James wants us to understand is this. He says it comes from your desires for pleasure. Now, the word desires is not in the original text. So it would read this way. It, it, it comes, he says, from your pleasure. That war in your members. So where is the real battle? Where, where, is, where does it begin? As I said earlier, it doesn't begin outside. It begins in here. 
So I allow my pleasures, and that word that he uses there is a word that really denotes inner sensual lust. It's a word that we hear even in society today. It's hedonism. The playboy philosophy that makes pleasure mankind's chief end it still is something that wages as a battle in people's lives even today. And so he says it's just this uncontrollable sensual desire. And he says, and it wars in your members. Members meaning what? Inside of me, my physical body, my, my mental body, my mental capacity, my spiritual capacity, but also it could be also outward members, <laughs> others. He says, you lust and you do not have. Now, that's a, a real important thing for you to see this morning because it tells you where lust always ends up. It ends up leaving you with nothing or wanting more. That's, that's what lust does. He says, so you lust and you do not have. In other words, you don't acquire anything. You don't, you don't have anything that lasts. There's, there's nothing that, that will stay with you. And so you have these sensual desires for pleasure and you go after them because you're lusting for those things and you have the gratification just for a short time, but then it's gone. And what happens is the enemy now uses that to feed the flesh because you say, oh, that was great, but it didn't last. So now, well, I'm going to do it again and maybe it will last longer. And if I do it more frequently, then maybe it will, it will stay with me and I'll have that sensation. I'll have that elation. I'll have that high. This is what happens in any kind of addictions. Anyone that's ever struggled with that, whether it's been illegal drugs or prescription drugs or, or, or pornography or any of those things. It's the, the inability to bring that into subjection and submission to the Holy Spirit. And you just tra- keep trying to feed it, but you never satisfy it. You never can satisfy it. He says, you murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight in war. He uses the word murder. But how many times have we seen violence through lusting go to such an extent that an individual actually takes somebody's life? Matter of fact, I went on on the, on the internet. I was just curious about this, and I was just looking at the, this just this last week murders across the United States, and it was amazing how many of those murders were the result of. Illicit relationships. Either a, a boyfriend finds out that his girlfriend's cheating on him, they get into a fight, he ends up killing her. I mean, we hear these things, and so we think, well, you know, he's really getting out on a limb here, isn't he? No, not really. Because lust can begin to take such a control, this, this, this desire for feeding my pleasures, that I lose all sense of moral and spiritual bearing. You covet and you cannot obtain. Now that word that he uses there, that word covet, that's a strong word. It's a word that denotes someone who simply cannot get over the fact that they can't have what they want. 
And they just keep going after it, and even to the point of being obsessed with it. He says, you ask and you do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. There's that word again. He keeps using that word. You ask, well, who's he talking about? Well, obviously asking of God. Now, I can ask anything of God. I can come with any request, any petition before God. I can ask him for anything. But the question that we have to ask ourselves, am I asking according to his will? Am I saying, God, thy will be done. Lord, I'm praying for this. I'm asking for this if it's in accordance with your will. In other words, if it fits into your design, into your plan, and what you want for me. Is this really what you desire for me? Is this something that is going to help me better serve you, follow you, love you, be obedient to you? There are things that I desire, but I don't need those things in my life. You know why? Because it would become idolatry. It would, I would begin to worship that. It would begin, begin to be something I was obsessed with. And so we have to guard our hearts against that. He says, you ask amiss. I like that word. We don't use it much in our vocabulary today, right? The word amiss. But just take the A off of there and you get the point. You missed. <laughs> you, you missed the point of what you really need to be doing or what you need to be asking for. He says, adulterers and, uh, and adulteresses. Man, I mean, those are strong words. Instead of the customary of my brothers, James bristled with you adulterous people. Again, he asked a pointed question. Don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? That's literally how that's rendered. And the word that he uses there, friendship, is philea, it's this where we where we get the word philanthropic or phileo, where where we have a, a kindly affection or caring for someone. He wants them to understand anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Literally is in a situation, a constrained relationship with God. The consequence is worse than ending up empty-handed. A rebellious Christian who has an illegitimate relationship with the world is at war with God, is battling with God. But here's the good news. There's always a cure. With God, there's always a cure. He says, or do you think that the Scripture says in vain The spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously, but he who gives more grace, therefore he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Wow. Well, there's always an answer with God. There's always a cure. The spirit who indwells you jealously yearns for you, and he gives more grace. Not a little grace, but more grace. I know this to be a fact. There's always enough Grace from God to cover any of my shortcomings, any of my sin, any of my failures. If I'm just willing to come to God 
and just ask for forgiveness, repent of that sin, acknowledge, Lord, it's wrong, it's my carnal pleasures, my, my carnal desires, I wasn't listening to you, I wasn't obeying you, I wasn't following you. It's just that simple. And God says, oh yeah, there's more than enough grace. Now grace is something I don't earn, I don't work for it. God just gives it freely, right? He, James says, God yearns jealously for the Holy Spirit which indwells you and He gives that grace, some translations say, abundantly or overflowing. The human spirit which indwells us, can yearn more for envy. But we should be yearning more and more for the grace of God. He who gives more grace, therefore he says, God resists the proud. If I'm living for just my pleasures, then I've allowed pride to just kind of take control in my life. Uh, I'm I'm living out proudfully in my daily life. This is where we get this idea or this concept of narcissism, someone who's so narcissistic. In other words, it's now it's just all about them. In their conversations, their actions, their attitude, everything is just about them. If you engage them in a conversation... Almost immediately or very quickly, it's just going to be about them. They're, just, it's, they're, they're going to be talking about themselves. They're not going to really be interested. I remember a number of years ago, I was a guest speaker at a, at a church. And after the service was over, I had the elders in that church came to me and they said, Pastor, we need to talk to you about a situation. And I said, well, you know, what, what's going on? I thought maybe it was, you know, something that particular morning and they said well it has to do with our pastor and I said well look I said I don't want to talk about your pastor unless your pastor's here and they said well can we follow up with you and I said sure and then it wasn't maybe a month later I was in that area and uh, they called and they said we'd like for you to meet with us and with the pastor and so we had this meeting and the whole thing was this they said when our pastor, when, when we're talking to him, it's though he looks past us. And, and, and he doesn't really focus on, and it seems like he's not really listening to what we're saying. And I'm looking at the pastor and he's kind of got his head down and, and I, I could tell it, it was a difficult time for him. And so I let everybody say what they wanted to say. And they said, and sometimes he'll, he, 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 he seems like he's listening, but he's really not. And then he just walks away and, and there's no response. He'll just go into his office. And, and they said, you know, we, it's not just us, but people are seeing this. And so I looked at the pastor and I said, Pastor, we, you know, this is not a jury and, and we're not trying to convict you. And, you know, hey, I just want to hear your heart. And he said, you know, he said, I just need to repent. And he said, to be honest with you, he said, it's just too often it's just about me. I'm just thinking about me, what I want, what I need, what I've got to do. And, and it was a tremendous moment 
not only in his life, but in the life of that church. Because what had happened was he had gotten so focused on himself that he wasn't receiving or responding to the people around him. And as a shepherd, as a pastor, you're there to tend the flock, right? And feed the sheep, to, to be relational with them. And, and that was a, a, a whole turning point in that ministry. And I saw him at the recent conference down in Southern California in July. And, and we've known one another for a number of years. And he came up, we were talking. And I'd been kind of observing him there at the conference. And, and I hadn't been around him that much, but I had never seen him that engaged. If someone came up to him, they were talking to him. I mean, he was like locked in. I mean, eye to eyeball. I mean, it was just, and, 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 and he wasn't walking away. He wasn't controlling the conversation. And the same way in the, matter of fact, in our conversation, it got to a point where I was just like, I, I kept saying stuff, looking for a response, and he wasn't saying anything. And I don't know if this ever happened to you. You're waiting for the other person to respond, and they don't, and you get, it gets a little, you get a little nervous. <laughs> it's like, okay, I, I don't know what else to say. Uh, say something, please. And But it, it was a transformation. It was a change for him. It was a change in his heart of realizing that, you know what? I have to make sure that it's not just about me, but it's about God. Verse 7, he says, therefore, submit to God. That's it. There it is right there. Submit to God. What, what else could I say? What could I add to that? If you're struggling with pleasures and desires or lustful thoughts or lustful actions that aren't pleasing to God, submit to God. All right? Amen? Amen. Submit to Him. And that, that is a strong word, submit. It, it is this idea of yielding. I have to yield. I have to give in to God. I have to recognize, hey, I've got a problem. I'm, I'm struggling with this. I, I have pleasures and appetites that are not honoring to God. And so I, I've got to yield to Him. I've got to surrender to Him. And he says, secondly, resist the devil. So we know that there's two players in this whole situation besides us. There's us, but there's two others. There's God and there's the devil. And he says... First, you submit to God, get right with God, work it out with God, get yielded to God, obey God, confess your sin to God, and then resist the devil. And that word resist literally means to put up a barrier, to put up something to block his ability to come against you, to influence you. And he says, when you do that, and I love this, he will flee from you. Not he will just kind of turn away or he'll be lurking around the corner. No, he will flee. That word flee literally means that he will rapidly try to get away. Why? Because the influence of God and the power of the Holy Spirit is greater than any impact or any influence that Satan can have in anyone's life. All I have to do is just invoke the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus, I rebuke you, Satan. In the name of Jesus, I stand against you. And when he hears that name, he must flee. 
And then he says, to wrap this all up, draw near to God. Draw near to God. So if I, if I pursue God, if I submit to God, if I resist the devil, if I recognize I've got an issue, I've got a problem, I've got sin that needs to be dealt with, I have affections that is leading me into lustful pleasures, and I'm willing to do that, then he says, what will happen is this. You'll want to draw near to God. I want to get as close to God as I can. And what will God do? He will draw near to you. God says, I'm welcoming you. I want, to, I want to love you. I want to minister to you. I want to bring healing. And he says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. You all know that you're sinners this morning, right? Amen? I remember years ago I was speaking at a, wasn't a Calvary Chapel. It was a, a kind of a liberal church. And uh, I said that. I looked out of the congregation. There was probably seven or 800 people. I said, you realize you're all sinners. Nobody said anything. If looks could kill, I would have been dead on the spot. I even had people come up to me afterwards. Why would you say something so terrible like that? And I was just like, um, well, because you are a sinner. <laughs> and then the rest of that, the rest of that sermon, there was probably, I don't know, maybe Ten minutes left. Nobody was with me. Everybody had checked out because I was the big, bad, visiting guy that called everybody a sinner. But we are sinners saved by grace, right? If I can't acknowledge my sin, how can I be saved from it? If I can't understand that sin is the very thing that is broken fellowship with the Holy God and by my very nature apart from God is to sin. And only through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, only through the power of the Holy Spirit do I have the ability to overcome sin or to be victorious over sin. I know sin is not a popular sermon topic today, but but it is sin that is dragging people into hell and separating them from a holy God. Because the great sin is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Sin that says, I don't need God. I don't need Jesus. I'm fine the way that I am. And because of a reluctance to recognize sinful behavior and and a sinful life is an abomination in the sight of God, many are being led into hell because... They don't believe that they are sinful or that they are sinners. How many times have we heard when someone say, well, I'm basically a good person. Won't get you into heaven. It won't save you. I mean, I know lost people. I have people around me, even my neighborhood that I've, I, I share with and I talk with, and they will tell me, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm a really good person. I do really good things. And, and it's difficult to say, well, but your goodness isn't enough. It doesn't give us favor with God. Favor with God comes through Jesus Christ. Amen? And he says, draw near to God. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double 
minded. So in verses 7 and 8, what is James telling us? Simply this. Yes, we serve a sovereign living God. But I have to understand that I have responsibility. That's what verses 7 and 8 is saying to us. I am responsible to do what? To submit to God. I'm responsible to resist the devil. I'm responsible to draw near to God. I am responsible to cleanse my hands. If I look at my my hands or the things that I'm into, the things that I'm doing, and I see that it's unclean before God, I have the responsibility to draw near to Him. I have a responsibility to purify my heart. Is there things in your heart today and you know that you're not right with God about? Things that you know that are not pleasing to God. And it could be anything. If I tried to give you a list this morning, I'm sure I would miss something. But you know in your heart of hearts that, hey, there's things here that are not right with God. He says, you purify your heart. He says, because if you don't, then you're double-minded. You say one thing with your mouth, but you do something else with the way you live your life. And there's a word for that. In Scripture, the word is hypocrite. It's living hypocritical. It's not being true to the nature that God desires for me. He says, lament, mourn, weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and He will lift you up. So why does he say what he says in verse 9? This is the reflective part of verses 7 and 8. He's saying if you don't, if you don't submit, if you don't resist, if you don't draw near, if you don't cleanse, if you don't purify, if you don't do those things, then he says all you're left with is this to lament and mourn and weep. There's not going to be any joy in your life. Your laughter is going to be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. You're going to be bummed out all the time. You're going to be a depressed Christian. We have been given this awesome privilege and opportunity of not only knowing God, but allowing God to transform our lives. And when we do that, we, we walk in the joy of the Lord. I don't know about you, but the Christians I like to be around are the joyful ones. I, I, when, when sin and, and lustful pleasures and worldly appetites take over a Christian's life, they're not a joy to be around. All oh, but when... They're walking in the Spirit and they're filled with the Spirit and they're staying up to date. They're keeping their spiritual bank book and their accounts up to date with God. Then they're a joy to be around. You know why? Because they're excited. They're excited about who God is and what God's doing. But not only are they excited, but but there's a release. They're, they're not walking around and with their head down and feeling the guilt of unconfessed and unrepented sin. So it's a good thing. It's a good thing to humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord. Why? Because He'll lift you up. I love that. 
There's an old chorus, early Calvary Chapel chorus. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. It's simple. There's only two chords in the whole song. Easy to play. But you sing it and you realize that that's exactly what God wants. He wants humility. Humility brings brokenness. Brokenness in the life of the believer brings blessing. What I mean by that is simply this. When I allow God to break me of myself, then I'm allowing Him to live as only He can in my life. In the last part of this chapter, two things. I don't have time to delve into it, but you can read it for yourself. Don't judge a brother. Let God do that. God's the lawgiver. He's the one who knows. He knows what's in every heart here today. He knows your every thought, your every imagination. He knows what you're thinking now. He knows what you're going to think. He knows what you'll be thinking five years from now. Because he's an omniscient God. He's all-knowing. So, the reality of that is if he does know those things, then I need to make sure that I have that mind in me that was also in Christ Jesus. But then he says, don't be boasting about tomorrow. Don't, don't be boasting before God. Don't be saying tomorrow, today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit. Because James says, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow, for what is your life? Now, that's an important question this morning. For what is your life? In other words, where are you at in your life? Where do you stand with God this morning? Do you, do you, are you in a right relationship with Him? Say, well, I'm saved. Okay, great. But are you walking in obedience to a life that reflects being saved? 